Welcome to the audio podcast for Beit Abba, the Messianic Jewish ministry at the Father's House. We exist to proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people and to connect Christians to Israel and the Jewish roots of our faith. As I said, we've just turned the corner on the Torah. We've turned from the end of the last verse in Deuteronomy, and this week, tonight and tomorrow morning, we're opening the first verse in the first book of the Bible. So this is an auspicious time to think about beginnings. Now, uh, in your King James and in the translations that we're used to, we hear, we read, in the beginning, but it doesn't really say that. That would say ha bereshit, but it says bereshit, which means beginning, which is really pretty cool because this story that we're walking in comes from outside time. You know, the scientists, and I'll get to this in a moment, the scientists will tell you there was a big bang. In other words, there was nothing, and then it exploded. Huh? No. There was a creator outside of time who created everything, and I'm going to demonstrate that to you from the Word. So I'm excited about this. I'm personally in a, in a new beginning. I am uh, rounding the bend towards a significant birthday, and so I'm determined that in this next birthday, which doesn't come until next spring, that I'm going to be stronger and healthier and more spiritual and more together than ever in my life. Can you say amen? amen. Why not you? Yeah. Why not you? Why not be like Caleb? Why not be like Joshua? Why not be like Moses? He lived to 120. Why not run this race yes, Lord. all the way? So we're starting the Torah. Some of you are on a fast right now, some kind or other of fast for the Father's house, with the Father's house. And we're fasting because of the USA elections. We're fasting for personal reasons, always. And uh, we're fasting for more of the peace accords that we've been seeing in the Middle East. It's a fascinating time. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about it. I'll probably do it more in the interview on Sunday. It'll probably be live streamed. It's Life Song Church. But uh, here's my take on the Middle East Accords. First of all, the Abrahamic Accords is kind of a misnomer because some of us descend from Abraham and some of us not so much. That's side, side stream. There's a lot of misnomers around the, the seed of Ishmael. I'm not talking about that tonight. However, I will say this. Regarding the Accords, you remember that uh, President Reagan said regarding the Soviet Union, trust but verify. Okay, so my Arab cousins say, trust in God, but tie your camel. <laughs> and that's what I'm looking at. When I see these accords, I am thrilled. Hey, as a Jew, you know, as somebody who will eventually be living in Israel, I think any time the Gentile nations want to make peace with us is a good thing. Yeah. You know, it's a tough neighborhood. And so that's good. However, we're watching this, uh, the nations align, getting ready for more scriptural unfolding of prophetic fulfillment. So we see that Turkey, China, and Iran are all vying for global dominance. Some from religious, some from secular point of view. China believes that they're it and they should be it and they will be it. Turkey believes that they're the center of the caliphate and should be a Muslim-dominated, this should be a Muslim-dominated world that's based in Turkey, like the Ottoman Empire was for 500 years. And Iran, well... You just hate everybody. No, the mullahs do. The people are precious. Yes. Iran believes that they should also be the, the leaders of the wiping out of the infidels and the bringing in a Muslim-dominated world. So that is happening while we are starting this new beginning. It's pretty exciting. Or not. Are you scared? Are you worried? Don't be scared. Don't worry. God's with you. It's okay. It's going to be okay. So Catherine and I would say to each other when a movie, we were watching a movie and it was terrible, and we look at it and say, it's going to be okay, right? Like, it's going to get better. No, it stinks. It's going to stink. Okay, this is going to be okay. This is going to be okay. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. 
He is Adonai of Adonai. He is Melech Hamalachim, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. What he says will happen. So we're in good shape. So Bereshit is the first word of the Bible. And it's interesting that, uh, I think we have a slide of it, but it, in the Hebrew, you know, we read from this way, right? From right to left. Uh-huh. Did you ever notice that the world is separated by and impinges on Jerusalem as the center of the world? I'll give you one example. All the countries to the east of Jerusalem read from right to left. All the countries on the west read from left to right. You can't make it up. You can't make it up. And here's a picture from the 16th century of what the, what the world looks like to God. I, I, I like this. This is, this is God's view. Jerusalem, Europe, Asia, Africa. It's pretty simple. In other words, all roads lead to Jerusalem. The history of man is written there. The most important thing that's ever happened on planet Earth took place there. The crucifixion, the birth and the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior and his return is all centered there. It is the center of the world. Because God's got a sense of humor, also the African rift goes into the ground there and the lowest place on Earth is there. So it's almost like reality is being sucked down into the area of Israel and Jerusalem to say, hey, 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 this is where it is. So you really want to come there. How many of you have been to Israel with us already? Raise your hand. You've been, you've been, you've been. Some of you. How many of you need to go to Israel right away? That should be every hand. You need to go sooner rather than later. Why? Because it's life-changing. So that was a good transition for a shameless plug. We have two tours coming up. They're both almost full. Next March, is almost full, and the following October is almost full. So if you have been thinking about, I want to do this, how do I do this, you know, do something and get there. It, it will change your life. Here's a promo about the tours that we do. Coming on a tour to Israel is both exciting and spiritually uplifting. When you travel the land with Miles and Catherine Weiss, you get the best the land has to offer, along with a unique biblical insight and an experience tailor-made for you. Father, may we hear from heaven. May we receive that which you want to do in our lives, the deposit that you have for us. When you come to Israel, it's just like the Bible comes to life. I just love feeling the presence of God everywhere I go. Along the tour, Miles and Catherine share from their heart and minister to the group, bringing revelation on the vision of the one new man, the relationship of Jew and Gentile. I have learned so much, like they talk about the Bible coming to life, and I literally felt like I've experienced the Bible coming to life in so many different areas. The welding wall, watching the prayers, just an amazing time. If someone is on the fence of coming to Israel, I would say just go for it. It is the best decision that I've ever made. And I would say like Israel is for anyone of all ages, whether you're young or old, like you will come here and you will not leave the same. When you tour Israel with us, we handpick every element of the tour to ensure a seamless and perfect experience for you every moment of the trip. If you want to have an experience with God, just come to Israel. Miles and I have had the joy of hosting these beautiful people with us in God's land, and He has been speaking to them, and we know He will be speaking to you when you make an appointment to visit Him in His land. So 
Come with us. Amen. I agree. I used to, when I started doing tours, when we started doing tours, we, we thought, and we specialized in just bringing pastors, and we bring busloads of pastors. And then I realized, talking with our friend Rosemary Schindler, she said, Miles, every Christian needs to go to Israel. We realized, oh, this is not a, a, an elite uh, designer ice cream and private haircut group. This is, everybody needs to go. So I really encourage you to come. So here's this story. Bereshit bara Adonai, et Adonai, et Elohim, v'hashamayim v'ha'eretz. It's the, the begin, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Created out of nothing. And it's a picture for us of God entering into, wanting to have relationship with the creation that he would make, and entering into, creating that creation, and then entering into it in relationship. And it's a beautiful picture of, of Shabbat also. This is the time when we kind of gather as family, we gather as friends, and we, we give glory to God, we give glory to what he's worked through in us, we pray for each other, we pray for children and grandchildren. It's a time when, when we see that God himself wants to dwell with us, and you can see it in the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, where the, there's this B, this B-looking sound, it's called a bet, and it's Bereshit, the first word of the Bible, and it really is also the word for house, the letter that begins the word for house, the letter that begins the word for son. And so the father wanted a house for his son, and he wanted us to dwell in that house with him. So he created this creation. It's seven words, and the word for it's Bereshit bara Elohim, et ha-shamayim ve'et ha-aretz. That word bara means out of nothing, right? The only way I can picture it, I've been studying all this physics-related stuff, which is way above my pay grade, but about how to interpret this stuff with physics. The only way to approach it is to think of a parade. I mean, this is one way I can approach it. Think of a parade, and it has a beginning, and it goes, and there's an end somewhere. But, it, but that's linear time, right? And so we think that time has a beginning and an end, but if you, th- if you were in a, in a helicopter, or you were above it, or you were outside of that parade, you would be seeing the end, the middle, the beginning, all from outside of it. So in a sense, there is no linear time. Stay with me, I I long ago gave up psychedelics, so I'm really working hard to to communicate this. But the idea is this, that that, uh, we think of eternity as a long time, when we've been there 10,000 years, uh-uh, uh-uh, eternity is, outside of time, right? It's poetic when we've been there 10,000 years. That's fantastic poetry. But the idea of who God is is outside of time, right? So he literally sees the end from the beginning. We exist in these three dimensions, right? Right? But time is the fourth dimension. And it was actually, it was Einstein. Einstein was the one who started pushing against this and trying to understand this space-time continuum that's in the Bible, but he was trying to understand it and and document it scientifically, who, by the way, at the end of his life said, as as he was getting ready to pass off this plane, he said, I am, what was the word, I am unutterably, or some some dramatic, I I am drawn to the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Here's a Jewish genius, and at the end of his life, he's saying, I think there's something in this, you know. So maybe we'll run into him. We can ask him to explain it in layman's terms. Come on. <laughs> Out of nothing. So there's only really two worldviews we can have. And, and, and 
beginnings, Genesis really, really asks this question and answers it. Two worldviews are everything is the result of a cosmic accident, right? Or we are the result of a deliberate design by a designer. One or the other. Now, it has all kinds of implications for the way people view their life and the world around them. But the, even in this first word, and you've heard me say this before if you've been here many times, that, that even in this first word, Bereshit, there's a picture of the gospel. There's all this hidden stuff in the language itself, in the pictorial versions of the word, and in the ancient pictographs. But if you take this first sentence, you can look at it this way. The, the bait is the house, the house, the tent that God wants to make. The resh, the second letter, is the word for head, starts with resh, Rosh Hashanah, head of the year, the head. The third is Aleph. It's a picture of the first or primary actor, the God, God the Father. The shin is to consume or destroy. It looks like teeth in the ancient pictograph. The yod, or the, the next letter, is the, the hand. It's literally the hand. And then Tav, the last one, is a covenant mark. And actually, when it's drawn in the ancient language, it looks like a cross. So really, this first word in the beginning is a verification in the ancient view of the language itself of the fact that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Because it says right here in that first picture, it says that God built a house, and as the father of that house, he as the head of the house, he called, caused a destruction to come to the son by his own hand on a cross. And it's really pictured right there. And throughout the, the ancient language, there is this picture of the gospel over and over and over again. There are all these people that are making bank off of Bible code books. It turns out there actually is some Bible codes that go back many, many centuries in rabbinic study. There's some that are really kosher, some that are just kind of commercialized. We'll get to that in a minute, but the Genesis starts to answer these basic questions. Why am I starting with Genesis tonight? Because the whole Jewish world is starting with Genesis tonight, and I want us to be in sync, right? I want us to be somewhat in sync. I know we're using our prayer guides, and we're doing all that stuff as well. I get it. That's good. We should all be doing that. However, Genesis begins to ask and answer these questions. One, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going when I die? It's pretty much what you gotta figure out in the short time we're here, and folks, it is short. I mean, I'm short, but this is really a short time, too. And everything that's in, see, creation, the beginning book of the Bible is what's been called the seed plot, or the, the, the beginning, the first mention, where, where whole themes of life are mentioned in Genesis, and they get played out throughout the scripture. I mean, think about it. Genesis talks about creation, man, the Sabbath, man, woman, the Sabbath, marriage, home, childhood, sin, murder, sacrifice, grace, trade, agriculture, city life, races, languages, the chosen people, the Jewish people, and so much more. The basics of everyday life are in the book of Genesis. So it behooves us to study it and to learn from it because it is about, because it's kind of like setting the stage for the rest of the story. Now, what about skeptics? Anybody here was a skeptic about the Bible? Or you still are tonight? The challenge has come over the centuries by what was started or took wings with what was called the, the school of higher criticism in Germany in about the 16th, 17th century. And they started intellectualizing things regarding the Bible in order to refute the basic 
understanding of the word, and which is funny because it's, very, it's a very Western uh, hobby. If you go, like we lived in Africa and we've been all through India and all over the world with the gospel, and when people get a hold of the word, you talk to a Muslim background believer and they got a hold of the word and you know what? I believe what it says. God says it, he means it, I believe it, it's gonna be real, it's gonna be happening. And so it's, so, it's that way in Africa and Asia and around the world. They just believe what they see, but we have time on our hands, I guess. And so we question, in the Western culture, we question the historicity of the patriarchal accounts. We question that, was there even writing in Moses' day? Is that even possible? And the Gospels and the Epistles, were they written in the second century, like way after they happened? But it's been refuted. It's been refuted. There's a great book that I don't recommend you read with 50 scholars in it, refuting those suppositions by using what you'll see in Israel. Archaeology refutes that. The documentation that's been found refutes that. Competent analysis, genuine analysis, objective analysis, which we've lost sight of in our culture. That's why we have two echo chambers, one on the left that speaks to itself and one on the right that speaks to itself. And so I'm praying for the restoration of civil discourse and even some uncivil discourse, but let's not come to blows over things, okay. And also, what refutes the higher criticism is the fulfillment of prophecy, which is why the essential answer, which I could get off the stage in one minute on Sunday, is what's the, Israel, what's the big deal? Fulfilled prophecy. You know, that's the big deal. God says it, he does it, do we believe it? So there's all this reality check. Now, the question always comes up, one thing that I, I was, when I was looking at that slide, I was thinking, oh yeah, uh, we, we always hear, or you hear objections from people, oh, the Bible's been mistranslated, over-translated, changed, all that stuff. That was okay as a discussion until 1948. And you'll stand with me at the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and you will hear the story of 800 year old, 800 years before Christ, Hebrew writings, the entire book of Isaiah, exactly the same one that you have in your phone you have in your original King James. It's been through major surgery twice. Same Bible. Same Bible. There's a couple of little uh, typos in it. I mean, really, really minimal. But what you read in your Bible is the same word that was found in 1948 that comes from 800 years before Jesus. That's been proven by archaeology. And the faithfulness, imagine... We, we take it for granted in the West. You know, we got the phone, we got the U version, we got this, that, and the other. We got all these different versions. By the way, if you follow the Babylon Bee like I do religiously, they have a great thing about the different versions and what they mean. I highly recommend it. Different versions of the Bible. I sent it to the pastor I'm speaking for on Sunday. He loved it. Um, the care of God in preserving his word, supernatural. Preservation. So one of my favorite pictures is uh, from the biblical gardens in Israel. Went there one time, and the one time I went there, I met this man who was a third-generation scribe, and he was sitting under a, a kind of a safe place from the sun, and he was copying a book of the Bible. And I asked him about it. He said, oh, yeah, my grandfather was a scribe, and my dad was a scribe, and I'm a scribe. And I said, well, how, tell me a little bit about it. He said, well, we, we take 
these herbs, this powder from these herbs, and he showed it to me, it was like white and yellow, and we mix them together and it turned black, turned into ink. And then we take this quill from a turkey that we found locally, and we write on this parchment on, of an animal that was grown in this land, and, and we, uh, we write the word, and if we make a mistake, we cut out the mistake, and we go and we bury it, and we say a prayer over it, and we continue. But if we make a mistake with the name of God, we burn the whole scroll and start over. Every time I tell this, it touches me in a certain way because when I think of how cavalier I am about the Bible, how many dozen Bibles I have in my home where people around the world are starving for the word, how we are, you know, and when I think about centuries, 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 generations, millennia of people writing that so carefully so that you and I could have the word of God, it's very humbling. (laughs) He happened, oh, this parenthetically, you probably heard this sometime, but he, my Hebrew name is Mordechai, that's my given name, and he was writing the book of Esther when I came upon him. So you gotta love God's sense of humor. So this, you always hear me say this is a long love story, right? You know, this is not, doesn't end in Malachi and then start with something new in Matthew. It's one long love story. But here's a, more of a, deep, a little more explanation of that. This is 66 books written over 2,000 years by 40 different individuals, and it provides a cohesive narrative that predicts the future and then fulfills the future. It's what, what the scientists call an integrated message system. Maybe Mark Zuckerberg has that in his lexicon, I'm not sure. The Bible comes from outside of time, is what I'm saying. This is something that's been dropped on us from eternity. And uh, I, I love that Augustine in the 7th, 6th, 7th century, he said that the, the New Testament, Newer Testament, you hear me say, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. You know, it's like they, they absolutely work together. And that's the benefit that we have as we start this season of Genesis. Now think about it this way. The Old Testament is the story of a nation. You know, it begins with the promise to Adam that that through his seed, through the woman's, the seed of the woman, there's going to come a family, there's going to come a Messiah, there's going to come this thing that's going to happen that Abraham will bring forth. The Old Testament is the account of a nation, the New Testament is the account of a man, Jesus, right? The creator became a man. His appearance is the central event of all history. Everything is dated, is timed, looks to and looks, looks, it's before and after Jesus and now looking for his return. He died to purchase us. This is God coming, dying to purchase us. He's alive now. And so our exalted privilege is to know him and to know his word. I mean, it's, it's a huge privilege, folks. We should not take it lightly. Now, when, listen, Catherine first and then Ephraim Goldstein, the Jews for Jesus, were trying to explain to me that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and I thought it was, you know, just, I was a Hindu. And uh, I had this experience, and this is for your Jewish friends, when you're talking to them. First of all, when you're talking to them, thank them. Thank them for the Bible. Thank them for the patriarchs. Thank them for the prophets. Thank them for... The wisdom books, thank them for the writings, thank them for everything you've been given that's come through 
the Jewish people. Like the way John Hagee says, he says, without, let's see, uh, without Judaism, there would be no Christianity. When he says it, it's got a lot of... Okay. So I had this experience of being a wanderer and then, and then having this definite experience of Jesus made me kosher. When my family would ask me, what happened to you? You were not a good person. I knew that. You were kind of a mental wreck. I knew that. You're kind of an emotional... I knew, I knew all the stuff. Then something happened because Jesus made me kosher. Something that the synagogue couldn't do, Jesus did. So I, I went on the street and with the Jews for Jesus in New York. I was, I was like newly saved. My pastor said, go, you'll get persecuted. It'll be good for you. <laughs> and I said to my roommate, well, what happens if I get like, yelled at or spit on or hit? I came back after a month on the streets Two weeks training in Chicago and a month on the streets of New York. And he said, how was that? I said, hey, I got yelled at and spit on and hit. But it was totally worth it. And so here's the picture of what happens to you when Jesus makes you kosher. I got the T-shirt. That was a long time ago. Hasn't changed. Yeah. Jesus made me kosher. You know, and that's what happens to Jews who come to faith. It's like all of our traditions and history and all the, the yearning and learning and all the hope so and the wonder and what if all gets settled. And it's like, this is what we've been looking for. This is what we've been longing for. So, so what about these five books of Moses that we're beginning? Genesis, the book of beginnings. Exodus, the birth of the nation. Leviticus, the law or instructions. Law is a terrible translation. It's in your King James, and therefore we all have it in our, our Bibles. It really is instruction or teaching. And the reason why it has gotten so much play is because it was mistranslated at the beginning, but it's about how to live. Here's some instructions on how to live. If you do this, life will be good. If you don't do this, life will not be so good. That's what it is. It's not law that is then done away with by Jesus, where the Bible says that Jesus, excuse me, Messiah is the end of the law. It didn't mean crushing law. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. That Greek word for end is teleos. It means the point of the law. Jesus is the point of the law. So he's in Leviticus in that way. Numbers about the wilderness wanderings. Anybody here wander? Anybody here wander in Jesus? Do you ever look back and see that he was with you before you knew him? You had that one? That's freaky, right? Oh my gosh, that was you. That was you that pointed my car into the mountain instead of off Highway 1 in Stinson Beach when I was drunk and speeding. Wow. And many others like that. Too, many, too numerous to mention where he, he was there because he had a purpose and a destiny for you. It may not be that kind of drama. It could have been something much more subtle and, and profound, but you get the idea. He knows you. And finally, Deuteronomy, the laws or the instructions are reviewed and things happen in each of those books. So in, in this Genesis book, we learn about all these things that are, that are going to be seen in the rest of the book. Genesis has two parts. I know this is kind of like an overview and you BSF people forgive me because I do it in a bouncy way. I don't do it in a linear way. I understand that. So you have to have mercy on me because God does. Okay. Genesis 1, it's two parts. There's the prehistory, which is Genesis 1 through 11, so-called prehistory. It's history. It's in the Bible. It's history, right? Yeah. But creation, fall of man, Genesis 3, Cain and Abel, 4, genealogy of Noah, flood of Noah, and finally 10 and 11, the Tower of Babel. It's all that historical awesomeness yeah. 
before we get to the second part of Genesis, which is the patriarchs, which begins with Abraham in Genesis 12 and goes to Isaac, 21 to 26, Jacob, 27 to 36, and Joseph, finally, 37 to 50. So the whole book of Genesis is divided in that way. The prehistory setting up for these patriarchs who will then become those from whom flows this further history that is given as an example to us. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, as in, don't try this at home. <laughs> what I mean by that is, although Pastor Dave said, there are 43 kings in the history of Israel. Out of the 43 kings, six were righteous, and 37, yard sale, everything goes. Just terrible, right? Which is a good thing for us to not make men kings. Hmm. We want whoever God wants to be ruling in our land, but we need to remember who the king is. Whichever way things go, folks, he is king. Amen? So be careful with kings. Be careful with government. Anybody here a government worker? I apologize up front, but hey, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> yeah. So are there hidden codes in the Bible? Yeah, it turns out there actually are. We're not going to get into it a lot tonight, but Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and a king's privilege to discover them. That's what I'm asking. That's why God leaned on me during that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. What I want in this season, I want wisdom from above. Yeah. I want to see what he sees. I want to know more about who he is and what he's doing than I have in the past. Yeah. That's a good prayer. Yeah. God, wisdom. Worked for Solomon for a while. Yes. <laughs> he flew well and landed poorly. He was one of those kings who's kind of, you know, flew well, landed poorly, you know, thousand wives. That's a bad idea. Which anybody who's married understands that, right? <laughs> but you are kings and priests, Revelation 1.6. You're kings and priests. So it's, it's the glory for you. You can search this out. We can search this out. We can ask the Lord for wisdom and deeper wisdom of what his word means. I want that. I want that in this season. Uh, Rabbi Moses Cordovaro, 16th century, said, The secrets of the Torah are revealed in the skipping of the letters. Right, which then gets capitalized on by writers in the modern world. But here's one small example of this, just to get you thinking about that there's more, more going on than meets the eye. If you start in Genesis with the first Tav, see the, the Hebrew word Torah is four letters. It's Tav, Vav, Resh, and He. Everybody, no, you get it. It's Tav, Vav, Resh, and He. Ha! Okay, uh, that's how you spell Torah. If you start with the first Tav in Genesis, and you skip 49 letters, you get to the Vav. If you skip another 49 letters, you get to the Resh. And if you skip another 49 letters, you get to the He, which means that every seven sevens, God says the word Torah in Genesis. Similar in Exodus. Every, if you start with the first letter of the word Torah, every 49, seven times seven, where have I heard that? Seven times 70, seven times 49, Feast of Weeks, oh yeah, from Passover to Pentecost, seven times seven, 49, how many times do we need to forgive? Seven times 70, 409, oh yeah, there's something about that that is not accidental, but points to somebody who writes from outside of time or, or dictates from outside of time, and then these guys like my buddy there get to write it down. And the prophets got to write it down. What an honor. Privilege to write. What? Say that again? Wait, slow down. Now, 
if you do that, in ex- Genesis and Exodus, every 40 letters, you get the word Torah. It's mathematically impossible, by the way. If you do that in, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's backwards. It starts with the last letter, and if you go 49, it spells Torah backwards, which means that something's going on in the book of Leviticus, because one is going one way, one is going the other. They're pointing to this unnamed book in the middle. They're pointing towards Leviticus. We're going this way with the Torah. We're going this way with the Torah. There's something going on with the book of Leviticus. What is it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Every seventh letter, starting with the Yud, every seventh letter spells YHVH, or the Tetragrammaton, so-called, or the unnameable name of God, which translated as Yahweh or Adonai in our Bibles, that the Jews won't say. We just say Hashem, the name. But that word that means the most holy name of God is in the book of Leviticus. And you've got the first two books and the, second, uh, the, third, the fourth and fifth books pointing towards the center and pointing to the holy name of God. Now, somebody had a lot of time on their hands to find this stuff out. He's outside of time. That's right. What is it? He's outside of time. Yeah. I mean, the people left for us. Yeah, he put it in there from outside of time, right? But do you get what I'm saying here? I'm saying that there's more mystery, there's more depth, there's more unending. It's like when we go to Israel and I say it's a deep well. You know, no matter how many times we've been there, 40 times, I don't know, I can't even scratch the surface of what is there. It's kind of like that. The Bible is way more like that. You know, that, that the... It's a deep well, that's all I can say. As some wise guy said, Israel is uh, 85 miles wide and 50 centuries deep. You know, and that's kind of how it is. Well, the word, if you take that exponentially higher, that's what the Bible is like. There's no end to it. Now, you can do this all scientifically and look at the physics and look at all these really cool things about the formulas that relate to this stuff. It's just like my, my hair was on fire studying this stuff. But... Or you can just believe the Bible. Yeshua is in every book of the Bible. Hundreds of years of higher criticism refuted over the last two centuries by 50 scholars, but it's settled in Luke 24. All we got to do is read Luke 24, and it's settled. Luke 24 happens on the afternoon of the morning that Jesus rose and was seen. So now... We're in the evening, early evening. Behold, two of them on that very day were traveling to a village named Emmaus. Emmaus means warm springs. And in a moment, they're going to say, didn't our hearts burn? The warmth of the love of God, the warmth of the reality of Jesus, the warmth of the love that sends God himself to a cross on your behalf and my behalf, that's going to burn in them. They're on the road to Warm Springs, and they are on the road to Warm Springs. It's a distance about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were speaking with one another about all the things that have been happening. This is the afternoon of the resurrection. While they were talking and discussing, Yeshua himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I always wondered about this. Is that like a, like a force field or some kind of a thin candy shell? Or how do you do that? Is that an M&M thing or some kind of costume thing? You know what I think it might be? And this is, just got to ask God. Isaiah 50 says they 
I gave my back to them and they pulled out my beard. What if the rabbi who had a full beard was unrecognizable because he had been so mauled by the Romans that they actually pulled his beard out so he no longer looked like the rabbi that they knew? Take it up with the Lord. I don't know, but I do know that Isaiah in the 50s there talks a lot about the crucifixion. Was his beard plucked out? Is that why he was unrecognizable? In addition to supernatural timing? Yeah, maybe. Then he said to them, what are these things you're discussing? with?" Don't you love this? It's like, Adam, where are you? God knows where you are, you know. It's like, Miles, what are you doing? Oh, <laughs> He said to them, what are these things you're discussing with another as, you walk, as you're walking along? And the one named Cleopas, which is the Greek for glory of the Father, <laughs> answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happen there in these days? It sounds so much like the internet to me. You know, like, hey, are you up to speed on this latest meme? Did you get this? This has gone viral, man. This thing happened in Jerusalem? It's viral. How come you don't know it? And Jesus, are you the only one that doesn't know? And Jesus says, what things? You cannot tell me that God doesn't have a sense of humor. Come on. Huh? What things? And they said, the things about Yeshua from Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in deed and word before God and all, the, and all the people, how the ruling Kohanim, the priests, and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they executed him. But we were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Besides all these things, Besides all this, today's the third day since these things happened. Third day after Passover is first fruits. The time when we wave the first fruits before the Lord. It's the time that Jesus resurrected as the first fruits, as the firstborn of many brethren. Because God's waving you, right? And at some point, you're going to be waved right in front of him. At some point, you're going to see the one who went before you as the firstborn of many brethren. And you, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, assuming we don't get molecularly disintegrated by the power of the love in his presence and the light, which could happen. I've, I've experienced the most minute sense of that on the mission field during times of extreme Jesusosity, where you just feel like your heart's going to explode if he doesn't stop. If he doesn't stop the anointing, if he doesn't dial it back, if he doesn't do something, my, I'm going to fall apart. I'm going to blow apart. I highly recommend those experiences, if you survive. Besides all this, this is the third day. This is first fruits. And that we, you know. But some women among us amazed us. Early in the morning, they were at the tomb when they didn't find his body. And by the way, this should forever settle the fantasy that this whole deal is patriarchal. I mean, if you're married, you know that that's not true. But up beside that, here is the honor, which you, see, you hear preached all the time, but I just want to underscore it again. Here's the honor being given to the women to be the first ones to see him after his resurrection. That's a statement for all time. So don't believe what you read on the internet. Early in the morning, they were at the tomb. When they didn't find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he's alive. Some of those with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see him. And so first he says, huh, what, what things? Hmm? Now he says, 
this is an older translation, but he said, Yeshua said to them, O foolish ones, so slow of heart to put your trust in all that the prophets spoke. In other words, why don't you believe your own book, which is what people told me when I was wrestling with Jesus. They said, Catherine, first thing she ever said to me, why don't you look in your own book? What? I'm trying to, I'm having an organic lunch here at my favorite Good Earth restaurant. What do you mean? Look, what? I haven't looked at that since I was bar mitzvahed. You know, why don't you look in your own book? He's saying that. He's saying, why don't you believe what the prophets have been saying for centuries? It's a good question. To not trust all that the prophets spoke, was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Isaiah 53, etc., etc. I mean, dozens, dozens of messianic prophecies talked about this thing that just happened. But you can't see it till you see it, right? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things that were written about himself in the scriptures. His face and his name are on every page. This idea of some famous pastor a couple of years ago said, we need to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament in order to reach the next generation, the modern generation. It's a really bad idea. These guys had the Older Testament and they were you know, not up to speed. How, what will we do to the next generation if we don't give them the whole story, right? So in Genesis, in the beginning was the Word. John, John saw it, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. He was with God, he was God, he was with God. Everything was created by him. Everything that happened in the beginning of this book in Genesis, Jesus was there. In Exodus, he's the Redeemer, right? With an outstretched arm. I redeem you, speaking of Israel, coming out of Egypt, but speaking to you and me of the cross, with outstretched arms, he has redeemed you. In Leviticus, Romans 10, 4 says, Messiah is the end of the law, meaning the point, the fulfillment of the law. Leviticus being the instructions, how to live, how to sacrifice, how to be part of the community, and how to do civil discourse together, how to have civil justice, how to live in a way that does, that does the least amount of damage for fallen humanity is right there in Leviticus. Well, he's the point. He's the point. Because we couldn't do it perfectly, we needed a Messiah, right? He's the point of the law. Numbers, he comes to the lost sheep in Matthew 10, 6. We were wandering in Numbers. Anybody else take 40 years to do an 11-day trip or feel like that? Yeah. We know that feeling. We know that feeling. God, Paul, you're in good company. I have people all the time in counseling telling me, but I, I meant to, and then I, and, uh, yeah, you know, I say it's t- totally apostolic. You know, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? That which I would do, I do not. That which I would do, I do not do. You're in good company, folks. The battle between the flesh and the spirit is with us for now. There is overcoming. There is living out of the spirit more and more. We can do that. That is real. But don't be surprised if you find a battle and a war within yourself. You're in good company with the Apostle Paul. So he talks about the lost sheep. He came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were, we were lost in the wilderness, right? And he came to the Newer Testament folks and said, hey, I came for you. I came for the lost sheep, right, in our wanderings. In, in Numbers, we see the bronze serpent being lifted up and the people are healed, the picture of the cross. Moses lifts up this bronze serpent and the plague is stopped. Hallelujah. God, we need a bronze serpent now and we want this plague to be stopped 
We want to be opened up again. We want our economy to thrive again. We want small business people to have a life and to be able to earn and feed their families and pay their rent. I'm sorry if I got a little natural there, but we went to get my hair cut yesterday, and our precious hair cutter and her husband, they have a shop in San Rafael, and she was, she's just a worker. She's, you know, she's an immigrant. She is um, from an immigrant family. She's just a worker, and she, she has done up to like 21 people in a day, 21 heads in a day, and she's down to four a day, you know? So the most I can do is encourage her and try to talk to her politically and spiritually and over tip. I don't know what else to do. But, but, but when I'm there, I, I find myself getting angry that someone as honest and hardworking as that can't make a living. That's not this message. Or maybe it is. I don't know. The cloud and the fire, his presence, all about numbers. The numbered Israelites, right? That's why it's called numbers because num- Moses numbered the Israelites. Guess what? The hairs on your head are numbered, right? He's got this. He's got his cloud by day and his fire by night. He knows you. He knows who you are. And finally, Deuteronomy, which is kind of a review of the whole story, but also has within it that incredible Deuteronomy 18:18, 18, 18, which I love because 18 being the number for life, 1818, double portion of life, 1818 in our Bible, it's uh, Moses saying that God's going to raise up a prophet like me from among your people, which, by the way, is your answer to people that tell you that, the, that a Muslim Messiah is coming. Mm. Has to be from the Jews. Had to be Jesus. And Moses prophesies it, and he says, hear this, God will raise up from among you a prophet like me from among your people, the Messiah of the Jews prophesied in Deuteronomy. So finally, they approached the village. So they, that's, haven't you read this? Haven't you heard this? Do you get that every, my name, my face, my work, my suffering, everything, including my resurrection, is on every page? They approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther on. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is already gone. So he went to stay with them. And it happened that when he was reclining at the table with them, he took the bread offered a blessing, and breaking it, gave it to them. Now, this is kind of out of sequence because it's the head of the house, not the guest, that breaks the bread and blesses it. But here he's a visitor, and he breaks the bread and he blesses it. And here's what happens. When he broke the bread, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from them. Now, that's just cool. But do you think it's possible that when he broke the bread, they saw the scars and recognized him. We don't know. It's like the beard, we don't know. But it could be that they recognized him. It's been said that he's the only one in heaven that's gonna have a scarred body. I don't know how that works. You're gonna have a glorified body, which we need, by the way, looking around here. (laughs) looking in the mirror, which I don't do, but you know, we're gonna need all the help we can get, right? But is it possible that when he broke the bread, they saw the price? And he disappeared. So regarding Genesis, let's let Isaiah interpret, remember the former things of old, for I am God. 
There is no other. I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient time, what is yet to come, saying, my purpose will stand, and I will accomplish all that I please. And then regarding the whole story of it unfolding in the person of Jesus, Romans 5 says, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, in the same way death spread to all men because all have sinned, but the second Adam, this Jesus, through him life everlasting has come, renewal has come. And we'll end it with this, Revelation 22. There's a lot of symmetry between Genesis and Revelation. There's also, and I'm doing this with somebody that wants to do, you heard of the Alpha Course? I got a friend who wants to do the Omega course, and he's asked me to help him write it. I don't know. My wife is skeptical. The idea being that uh, an alpha type course, an introductory course about prophecy in the end times. I don't know. We'll see the Omega course, Alpha Omega. But there's symmetry between Genesis and Revelation. There's also incredible end time symmetry between the book of Exodus and Revelation. Exodus has keys for understanding Revelation. But here's what 22 says. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. For more information about Beit Abba, log on to our website at tfh.org slash Beit Abba, or call our office at 707-455-7790.